Okay, let's look at our scripture as we continue through the book of John. This is John 7, 25 through 53. Jesus continues to be at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he is debating and, and, uh, with the Jewish people and the leaders. Uh, he has spoken, and it says here in verse 25, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and you see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. The word of the Lord. Well, we are at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is one of the three uh, uh, main feasts in Jerusalem. Um, it's actually the most popular of the feasts. Uh, it is uh, called the season of our gladness. And there was a proverb about the Feast of Tabernacles. He who has not seen the rejoicing at the pouring out of the water of Siloam at the Feast of Tabernacles has never seen rejoicing in his life. So it was a, a time of rejoicing of the, of the people of Israel to gather together. And it had three um, significances, I guess, three focuses. One was an agricultural focus. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering. Because the harvest was done and people would bring the harvest and they would praise the Lord for the harvest. 
And they would, it was also the beginning of the rainy season. And so they would pray for rain. Uh, you know, Israel was a very arid land. And so if there was, the, the rain would determine what the crops would be like the next year and, and whether they would survive or not. And so they would come and they would pray for rain. But they would also look back on the faithfulness of God. They would dwell in these tabernacles, these booths, these temporary shelters to commemorate how God cared for the Israelites in the desert, how he fed them with manna from heaven and how he gave them drink as he, uh, from the rock, the, the water that spilled out from the rock. It was a, a time of looking back, but it was also a time of looking forward. It was a time of looking forward when God would pour out his spirit and give life to the world, that all would be right, that there would be shalom, and the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of God. So there were heavy crowds in Jerusalem, and the atmosphere was electric. And the question on everyone's minds was this, is Jesus going to show? He's been doing miracles, and his teaching is like no one has ever heard before. And so they were looking for Jesus. And if you remember from last week, Jesus had shown up in the middle of the feast and he had been teaching. And there were a variety of different people saying different things about Jesus. There was a host of different opinions. In fact, I want to look at them. Uh, we see in verse 25, some people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. Can it be that he really is the Christ? So there was a group that was confused. Is he the Christ? Is he not the Christ? Then we see in verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So there were a group of people that were seeking to arrest Jesus, to put him in jail. They didn't think he was the Christ. They thought he was a, an instigator, a rabble rouser. But then we see in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And then in verse 40, when they heard Jesus speak, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. He's the one that Moses talked about who has come. He's the prophet who's supposed to lead us. But then in verse 41, you see other people saying, this is the Christ. But then other people said, is it the Christ to come from Galilee? Verse 43 says, so there was division among the people over him. So John is going out of his way to show the varied opinions of people about Jesus. In fact, most of this dialogue is hearing the varied opinions about Jesus. Why does John go out of his way to do that? Because John wants us to focus on the fact that the number one question that we have to answer in our life is this. Who is Jesus Christ? The number one question that you and I have to answer in this lifetime is, who is Jesus Christ? The question has eternal consequences. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is saying that a path has been opened up to the Father in which you can have eternal life immortality, a reconciled relationship with God. Remember that God can't look upon sin. So Jesus is saying that I come to bring forgiveness and a way to be reconciled with God. But it's only through Jesus. It's not through a religious system. 
It's not through living a moral life. It's not through gaining wisdom or understanding. Jesus is saying, and John is saying, you must answer the question. Some of you may be here thinking, well, I'll get to that later. My life is very busy. I have a lot of things to do. There will be time. But the truth of the fact, my friends, is we don't know how much time we have, do we? We have to answer the question. And if you have answered it, I ask you this. Does your life reflect that answer? When you look at the decisions you make, your relationships, the way you spend your time and your money, the things that you pursue, the way you love your spouse, the way you raise your children, the way you see the world, does it answer the question, yes, I too am a follower of Jesus Christ? We must be certain that we have answered the question because a half-hearted answer will not do. But we progress on in the story. It comes to the last day of the feast in verse 37. It's called the great day. Had its own name. It was called Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana for Hosanna literally means please save us. And Rabbah means great in Hebrew. So taken together, these Hebrew words mean great salvation. It's the day of great salvation. The great day of the feast. And there were a variety of rituals that they would do. They would together as a people, as this huge body of people, recite Psalm 113 through 118. And then they would wave branches and they would walk around the altar seven times saying, save us, we pray, O Lord. Prosperous, O Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then there was the water ritual. Remember that the rains, as I said earlier, were crucial. It was life or death for them. And so they would pray for rain. This is one of the prayers that they prayed. Adonai God, my sole source of salvation. I was brought low, but you have delivered me. Help those who hope in you. Provide water for every shrub. Condemn not the earth to infertility. Withhold not your blessing of rain. Satisfy your thirsting creatures. All those who call upon you, help us now. So they would pray these prayers for rain. And as they were praying, the priest would arrive with a golden pitcher. He had gone to the pool of Salome and he would fill this golden pitcher and he would walk to the altar. And as he walked and came into the gate, into where the altar was, the people would recite Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the water was carried up to the temple altar and it was poured out as an offering to God. It was to commemorate the Lord's provision of water in the desert. His faithfulness in meeting their needs. And it was pointing out his pouring out of his spirit in the last days. So as the priest is doing this and thousands, maybe tens of thousands are watching. Right at this time, I bet you a million dollars was the time when Jesus gets up and it says, cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The response 
What must it have been like as the people heard these words? Astonishment, incredulity, silence. As Jesus says, as the water is being poured, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What is Jesus saying? Really, there are two parts. The first is this, if anyone thirsts. They were just reciting Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus is saying, are you thirsty for salvation? Do you want to be made right with God? To experience the blessing of having all of your sins washed away. Everything wrong you have ever done, forgiven. Do you want to be called righteous by the one who made you? Do you long to be adopted into the family of God? For God to see you as his son or daughter. For him to love you fully and lavishly as he loves Jesus. Do you long for the redemption of your soul? That's what Jesus is asking when he says, if anyone is thirsty. The truth is all people thirst, but they thirst for different things. Alexander McLaurin, a preacher that preached about a hundred years ago, said this about thirst in the world. This is the world, a group of thirsty men raging in their pangs and not knowing where to find solace or slaking for their thirst. I do not need to go over all the dominant desires that surge up in men's souls, the mind craving for knowledge, the heart calling out for love, the whole nature feeling blindly and often desperately after something external to itself which it can grasp and which it can feel satisfied. You know them. We all know them. Like some plant growing in a cellar and with a feeble and blanched tendril feeling toward the light which is so far away, every man carries about within himself a whole host of longing desires which need to find something round which they may twine and which they can be at rest. The misery of man is great upon him because having these desires, he misreads so many of them and stifles, ignores, atrophies to so large an extent the noblest of them. We can relate with what McLaurin is saying, can't we? We can all relate with this deep and profound thirst that makes us keep trying something new, a new job, a new spouse, a new drug, a new car, a new house, a new religion. We are continually reaching blindly for that which we hope will satisfy our souls. But what McLaurin is saying is there is a thirst that is noble that is under them all. It's the thirst for God. However, many of us misread our thirst. We think our thirst is due to our job. So we quit our job. We think our thirst is due to our marriage, so we quit our marriage. We think our thirst is due to a lack of pleasure, so we seek pleasure in our appetites, somehow convincing ourselves that momentary pleasures will satisfy the thirst of our souls. In fact, there are some who so misread their thirst. They so ignore the thirst of the soul and indulge in the pleasures of the world that the noblest thirst within them atrophies. 
Over time, these souls convince themselves that they have everything that they need. They busy themselves with work and routine, hobbies and pleasure, family and politics, and eventually they become altogether unaware of their thirst for their creator. They no longer look longingly into the heavens. But Jesus is standing up in front of the crowd and in front of us saying, if anyone is still thirsty for God, let him come to me and drink. I am the pitcher. I am the water. I am the one you can come to to satisfy this deep thirst in your soul. It's not in all of these religious observances, the sacrificing of animals, the waving of branches, the reciting of scriptures, the pouring of water. The best they can do is point to the one that is salvation. I am the well of salvation, so come to me and drink. What does that mean to come to him and drink? It means to believe in him, that he is who he says he is, that he is the one who has come down from the Father, and that by putting your trust in him and trusting in his death on the cross, it is enough to reconcile and bring you to God. I am a pickleball player. Used to play tennis. Now I've taken uh, to playing pickleball. And I play singles pickleball, and it's very uh, strenuous. And I live in Virginia Beach, which is a very hot place normally. So in the summer, there are three things that I bring when I go to the court. I bring my paddle, I bring my towel, and I bring my water jug. Because the heat is fierce. And after I've played for a while, I begin to have this deep gnawing feeling in my heart. I have to get water. There's only one thing we'll do. It's not coffee. It's not soup. It's not sawdust. It's cold, clear, fresh water. And so I go to my water jug, and I tip it up, and I drink and I imbibe, and I feel satisfied deep down in my stomach. Jesus is saying that if your soul is thirsty like that for God, for forgiveness with God, for reconciliation with God, there's only one thing that we'll do. Come to me and drink. So have you? Have you come to him and drank? Many thirsty souls admire Jesus from afar. They come to church and hear him preached. They go to classes and hear him talked about. They attend community groups and discuss him. But they never get any closer. Perhaps it's because they are tasting the world and have become satisfied with the counterfeit while the genuine lies within reach. But Jesus says, come to me. It's a statement that demands action, doesn't it? Leave your watering holes and draw near to me with thirsty, expectant hearts. We must look to him to be our satisfaction, our one true source of life 
and we must drink from him. For Jesus' invitation stands for them and it stands for us. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. For Jesus is the only one who will satisfy the thirst of our hearts. Well, Jesus ends with the second statement, a statement of satisfaction. If anyone comes to me and drinks, whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice it says, as the scripture has said, he is most likely quoting Isaiah 58, 11, which says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus is saying he will satisfy your desire in scorched places. In other words, it doesn't matter your external circumstances. If you're living in a desert, if all seems desolate around you, if it's scorched earth, he will satisfy your desires for wholeness, for fullness, for contentment in him. You shall be like a watered garden. Do you ever see a watered garden? It's lush. It's full of life. It's bearing fruit and flowers. And there's variety and there's beauty to it. Like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus is saying what I can give you is not a temporary condition but something that lasts in perpetuity. He's saying that my love will never fail. Jesus goes further. He says out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not springs, but rivers. Rivers are big things, right? Big bodies of flowing water. And Jesus says not just one river, but rivers will flow out of you. Jesus interprets what that means, rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus is saying what we are thirsty for and what he will provide in massive quantities is the spirit of God. Now the spirit of God is the third person in the Trinity. And he has a special role in the Godhead. He is the life giver. We see him at the beginning of creation when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God was hovering. The, the word is actually brooding over the waters. The spirit is the one that brought life to the world. We see when God makes man in Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man was alive. In the Hebrew, the word ruach, which means spirit, also means breath. It's the breath of God breathed into us which brings us to life. The spirit is the one that raised 
Jesus from the dead. Notice Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, I will send the Holy Spirit to live in you and he will give life to your mortal body. As the spirit who resurrected Jesus' body, he will resurrect your soul. Now the ESV, which I read from, says, out of his heart will flow living waters. I wish they had translated it a little bit different because the Greek word actually is belly. In fact, the King James translates it as belly. It's only two other places in the New Testament where the word belly is used. One is in Matthew 12, 40, when Jesus refers to Jonah being in the belly of the whale. And then in Philippians 3.19, where Paul describes the enemies of Christ, and he talks about their God is their belly. Why do I wish it was translated out of their belly? Because thirst is a dimension of our appetite. In the ancient world, the heart was thought to be the center of one's convictions. But the belly was the center of one's appetites. Jesus is saying that out of your deepest appetites will flow rivers. Jesus has come to satisfy the deepest cravings, the deepest longings, not only of our hearts, but of our appetites. We all have hunger pains inside of us to find satisfaction, to fill the deepest part of us. And Jesus is saying, you will find satisfaction if you come to me and drink. Do you believe that? Do you come to Jesus hungry and thirsty with the belief that he can satisfy the deepest desires that you have? That's what he does for those who come thirsty to him. I've spoken before from up here of the phenomenon that we call a mirage. It occurs in the desert. And it's basically this, that the heat given off by the land refracts the atmosphere above it to create this shimmering image that looks like water. The only problem is it isn't. But when you have someone who's really, really thirsty in the desert and they see this image of water, they will start walking toward it. But the problem is, is it's, a, it's a cruel illusion because the closer you get to it, the more it recedes. So you never ever get there to see if it's there at all. And there isn't any water there at all anyways. So are you living in a desert? Do you see what the world promises and chase after it? But it never seems to deliver. It's always out of reach. It can't and it won't because it's not real. That relationship which promises true satisfaction can never deliver. That job or position can never fill the emptiness of our appetite. That new possession or trinket 
or bobble will grow old. But there is a true source of satisfaction. And Jesus invites us today. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if you do, out of your heart will flow, not trickles, not springs, but rivers of living water. Are you thirsty? Does your soul thirst for home? To be reunited with your maker? Does your soul thirst for redemption? Are you starving for the forgiveness that only Jesus offers? Come to Jesus and drink. Come and take of the living water. And here's what Jesus said to the thirsty woman at the well in John 4. You shall never thirst again. For Jesus is the only one who will satisfy the thirst of our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Jesus, that you have come to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts and our bellies. Let us be satisfied with nothing less. Come to us and fill us with your spirit. Let us be content in you and you alone. For you are the one that our hearts were made for. You are our redeemer. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.